Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. What number are we thinking of? 69, dudes! Well, it's 1969, okay? Walk across the USA. It's another year for me and you. Another year with nothing to do It's another year for me and you Another year with nothing to do Film is not an immediate art form. Production can take weeks or months or more to complete. The cinema of 1969 reflects the turmoil of 1968. The political upheaval and protests that went on around the globe from the Tet Offensive in January of 1968, the general strikes of France in May 68, the riots that ravaged America from Washington, D.C. to Chicago to Kansas City throughout the spring and into summer, political crises in Poland, Pakistan, West Germany, Scandinavia, Czechoslovakia, Spain, Italy, France, Brazil, and the U.K. and Yugoslavia. If 1968 is the year that shook the world, then the fallout of that year should be writ large on the silver screen in 1969. Throughout the year, we'll be looking at several films from 1969 and how politics, economics, religious, societal, and intellectual shifts in 1968 were reflected in the cinema of 1969. Join us, won't you? Welcome back. 
Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Sam Deegan. Hello. Also back in the booth, and it's not even September, is Mr. Jonathan Owen. Et l'amour et non la guerre. Hi, Mike. <laughs> Our look at 1969 continues with a discussion of Jacques Rivette's L'Amour Fou, the story of a director, Sebastian, and an actress, Claire. We watch them work together on a play... Andromache? Is that how we pronounce it? Yeah. You could also just say Andromache, which is the actual name of the character. Seeing the crafting of the production via behind-the-scenes 16mm footage, as well as the 35mm film cameras that capture the real behind-the-scenes footage of Sebastian and Claire's fizzling relationship. This is one of those episodes at the projection booth that is just going to burn up the charts, a discussion of a four-hour French film that is very difficult to find. That's why I am such a success, because I know what the people want, and I give it to them. Jonathan, when was the first time you saw La Morfou and what did you think? I have quite a clear memory of it because I saw it in 2006 and it was at the uh, it was at the retrospective of Rivette's films in London um, at what was then the National Film Theatre. And so, yeah, I was really excited to get to see these films that I had read about. And I, I'd already seen uh, Celine and Julie go boating and La Belle Noiseuse. So I was kind of a fan of Rivette already. Um, Celine and Julie is one of my favorite films. And uh, I'd read a little bit about La Morfou. It wasn't quite what I expected. I think I expected something a bit more spectacular, maybe a bit more like overtly dramatic. But it still made a very big impression on me. I remember sort of coming away from it feeling quite overwhelmed and I think as often with Rivette's films, like lots of mysteries, you know, still left in my head. And uh, I think the fact that the film is quite uh, maybe more more unspectacular than I thought it would be, that the, the portrayal of breakdown is less um, dramatic in a kind of overt way. I think that made it all the more powerful. Uh, yeah, I think it really lingered with me. Yeah, I, I think it set me up well for seeing um, Out One because I saw Out One the week after. And I think probably Out One would have just destroyed me, I think, without that prior preparation. So, yeah, it was a yeah very uh, important film for me, I think. How about you, Sam? Yeah, I had a similar experience, although more recently. I want to say probably six or seven years ago, I happened to see Paris Belongs to Us and... I had been reading about Rivette and his films for a few years, but like you said at the beginning of this episode, they've been kind of hard to find. And I saw Paris Belongs to Us, and my mind was just blown. And I thought, you know, what the hell is this? <laughs> I need to see more of these. I pretty much worked through a lot of his filmography throughout like the period of a year, year and a half as I could track things down. I expected La Morfou to be a little bit more like Paris Belongs to Us is basically a thriller and Celine and Julie Go Boating is a fantasy film and he's got some more fantasy films that he made in the late 60s or the late 70s and early 80s. And so I expected it to be like that and was totally unprepared and was going through a bad breakup at the time <laughs> when I watched this film. And it was it was sort of like a four and a half hour long therapy session that I was not emotionally prepared for, but 
that that's just how Rivette's films are, I think. And I, you know, have never forgotten that experience. I mean, it's not something you want to maybe watch every day, but just like incredible in a way that I, I don't even know if I can fully articulate, but I, I guess we'll try during this episode. I actually watched this for the podcast. This was my first time seeing it. Rivette is uh, he's an interesting director in that I've only covered two of his films, and I've only seen two of his films. So I saw Celine and Julie go boating. I managed to see that at uh, an art theater around here, and it just captivated me. And I really have not experienced any of his other films until I watched this one. So I was kind of unprepared. I knew it was going to be a four-hour journey going into it, but I used the whole 1969 as a theme, and I saw Rivette there having this film out in 1969. I just said, okay, this gives me an excuse. It gives me a push to watch a four-hour film, which normally I would shy away from. Like, I, I don't know. I'm okay, I guess, with The Irishman being three and a half hours. It seemed to move along pretty well, but sometimes I see running times on movies and it just scares me away a little bit. I haven't had the hotspot to watch Out One or even the recut of Spectre, but I said, okay, this is it. I'm going to buckle down and I'm going to spend all evening watching this movie. And I can't imagine you going through a bad breakup and watching this movie at the same time. That is pretty intense. Uh, yeah. Also, let's back up for a second. Martin Scorsese and Jacques Rivette, I don't think should ever be compared <laughs> <laughs> by anyone. Not which is probably going to make some people turn this podcast off, and I'm sorry, but I think they're just in totally different leagues. I think anybody who's listening to this podcast is already a pretty special person, so they might <laughs> forgive me on that. The five people who are listening right now? You know, we were already on just a, a blockbuster episode when it comes to Arrows Plus Massacre, and I was reminded quite a few times of Arrows Plus Massacre while I was watching this, and it wasn't just for the running time the year of release, it was more about the relationships and just the the whole man-woman politics that was going on. And I, I don't think that this – we can't make this an episode where, where we sit down and go scene by scene. I think we just have to talk about this overall because it is such an experience. And yes, the scenes add up and there's definitely a, a great order to them, but there's just so much. There's so much stuff to chew through in this movie. I think the length really is, uh, it's not really like an incidental issue, I think, when talking about Rivet. I mean, I think in a way that's been partly the, the reason why his films have been marginalized so much. And I remember there's a, a book by um, John Pearson, who I think was a, a distributor of like independent film in uh, New York, I think through the 70s, 80s. And I think he has a comment somewhere that he would basically, I think when he was uh, running a cinema, you know, he would exhibit anything except for four hour Jacques Rivette movies. So I think even, you know, yeah. (laughs) And I think this is probably why this film, I think, particularly has kind of disappeared because I guess um, Out One, even though that, I mean, is the ultimate in that that's like nearly 13 hours, it kind of lends itself to serialization because I think. one of the first ways that people saw out one was actually as a kind of a TV miniseries in France. I think that's how that was um, shown in the nineties. And um, ironically now out one, which in a way is the sort of the most 
uh, audacious thing that he ever did. I mean, that now almost overshadows La Morfu. I think La Morfu is the one that's really slipped through the cracks. And I think that that four hour running time is kind of hard to screen, I guess, isn't it? And um, I think when I saw it, there was an interval, there was a little break. But uh, and I, I think also, I think they should not be shown sort of in, in parts. I think really there's something about a film like this that has to be, I think it has to be sort of digested in kind of more or less one fitting. I think that's part of the impact that he's trying to create. I mean, I think that he said in relation to Out One that he wanted a film that would be kind of monumental and kind of like overwhelming and for there to be something, I think the word he used was like tyrannical, something tyrannical <laughs> about it. And I feel that that's true with La Morfu, perhaps even more so, really. I think it just does not let you out of its grip, really. And by the point where you get to the scene where they destroy, the, the couple destroy the apartment, I mean, that's almost a sort of a, there's almost a sense of relief, I think, in that sequence. I mean, that's the closest you come, I think, to something that's more sort of liberatory. But I mean, for most of the runtime, it is quite a harrowing, quite oppressive experience, I think. Yeah, I I feel like Rivette is one of those directors whose work is so hard to talk about, because if you just give a little synopsis of what his films are about, you can't really translate how it feels to watch them. But I think I think tyrannical and oppressive are definitely good adjectives. But I mean, to me, I think there are two kinds of films. And he sort of talks about this throughout his criticism as well. But I think on one hand, you have films that are meant to entertain, which ostensibly is why most people watch movies and go to the theater. But then I think you have films that are meant to teach you something or take you through some sort of experience. I mean, Rivette talked a lot about how for him, what interested him the most in cinema and the experience that he most wanted people to feel when watching his films was terror. And I think also anxiety and madness are sort of in there. So it's not like you're sitting down to watch Marriage Story or something where in 90 minutes we see people argue out their feelings. It's, <laughs> it's so much worse, <laughs> but so much more authentic. That really is, I think, key to the political conception of cinema around this time. I mean, I think it really makes a lot of sense to discuss this film in the context of the year that it was made. I think that's 68, 69 period, especially in France, I think is really important to the sort of experiment that he undertakes here. Um, there's there's an interview that I found with him from Cahier du Cinema from, I think, 68. And so I guess around the time that he was starting this project or when he was working on it, and uh, he talks about, you know, what he feels the spectator's position should be in the kind of films that he wants. And he says that, uh, I think the quote is that the spectator should not be like a comfortable spectator. The spectator should be somebody who is involved in, and I think the term he uses is common work. It should be like a process of producing common work. So between the filmmakers and the the viewer, the viewer should be involved somehow and participate in the creation of the experience. And, uh, Interestingly, he compares the experience of watching and of making the film to delivering a baby. And uh, I think it's interesting that, I mean, the first thing we hear pretty much in the first image of the film is the the sound of a baby. And uh, I think that idea of 
not only making the film but watching the film as a, as a process as some as a process of collaboration and of something potentially kind of painful but also ultimately transformative i mean i think that is key to i think his aesthetic at this time and i think I guess it relates back to that idea of, I guess it's kind of a Brechtian idea in some ways, but I mean, I wouldn't say that he's really a Brechtian filmmaker like Goddard, but I think nonetheless. He would be mad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there is a, yeah, I think there is a political dimension to that idea that we're going to you know, stop um, this idea of, you know, the consumer, the spectator now is somebody who is involved in producing this. This is a kind of activism or it's a kind of collaboration and, uh, there's almost a sort of an equal equality between the maker and the and the viewer, which I think is uh, yeah is key to that idea of you know I think that the film should be difficult. It should be it should not be easily consumable. That idea that you mentioned of it being transformative is for me probably the most important quality of Rivette's work and why I love him so much. Even though I feel like I can never recommend his films to anyone <laughs> because. There's this sense that I think with most films, you watch them and you experience them to a degree. And when it's over, maybe with some films, you think about them after the fact. But I don't think you have a genuine personal experience with most cinema. But with his films, you do. And especially, I think that's partly why they have, they almost have to be so long, is because at the end, you go through something. And, you know, I spend a lot of time writing about films that deal with trauma, often war trauma. And so certainly the more mainstream of those want you to experience all sorts of feelings like, you know, pain and despair and so on and so forth. But I think Rivette is one of the few directors who really makes you experience genuine despair in the process of watching his films because you're, especially if you're in a setting where you have to stay there for the full four hours and you can't, and a lot of his films are that long and you can't escape, but it's such a vital experience if you can, you know, <laughs> endure it. I wish I had been in a theater to watch this because I always go back to that experience of watching Celine and Julie and being in a theater and not having that ability to look at my phone, look at my laptop, you know, pet the dogs, any of that kind of stuff. It was just pure sitting there, shutting up, experiencing it. And that was it. And that's what I wish I had had the ability to do with this film because I think it would have been a much better viewing experience yes i must admit that i've had the um the box set about one at home for a long time now the arrow box set and I, i've just not really in a way i've not really wanted to sort of spoil the original experience i had watching the whole sort of you know 12 and a half hour version in a cinema because that was i think that really was a yeah that was a transformative experience i think the the, the combined experience of lamo and then out one pretty much the same week or one week after the other, I remember just coming out of the whole thing, just really, um, yeah, just, just, I guess, blown away, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, that, that sense of trauma, I think, is there. And um, But also, I, I, 
I guess, sort of illuminated too. I think there's so much there that makes you feel that you are participating in something almost in a kind of conspiratorial way. I think the fact that you've been, you know, sharing this experience with other people in the same space and uh, doing something that, I mean, I I guess for a long time it was not possible to see. And um, and then I guess also just just the process of interpretation as well is part of that because I mean he he gives you different roads to go down. There are kind of blind alleys. There are things that are mysterious. You know I think it entitles you to sort of develop your own film in your head. Really, I mean that was the my takeaway when I saw Celine and Julie that it was about opening up the creative process and i think so many films sort of try and shut that down they try and tell you you know what to think how to interpret but i think rivet it's all about opening up the the process of interpretation and of fantasy and for me that explains i think the sort of circularity that you get i think um celine and julie you have that kind of circular ending where you start you start and finish with basically different versions of the same scene and then here i mean literally the same shot begins and ends the film. And to me, I think that circularity is about the idea of, you know, we can kind of replay this any way we want. We can reimagine it. It gives us the freedom to interpret it differently, you know, to think of our own films. And uh, yeah, I think there's, as well as being tyrannical, there's also something democratic about that in a weird way. Yeah, it's just so unlike anything else. It really is hard to do a podcast on this. (laughs) Oh, you're telling me. I don't think we can overemphasize either just how different this was when it came to his work to date. You know, you talked about Paris Belongs to Us. He did another film called The Nun. And then he did a series of documentaries on television about Jean Renoir. And I think it was the combination of that plus 1968 and all of the revolution that was happening in France at the time that really pushed him into this new venue, this new way of doing things. And Jonathan, you talked about the collaboration between director and audience. And I think that that collaboration of director and his actors was just so key because after this, he began to give his actors so much leeway and would work with them so they would help create the story and then he would shape it in the editing. And that is something that we hear about today and we know, yes, this director allows a lot of ad-libbing or improvisation, but these films were so improvised and just shaped in the editing room. It's just kind of wild to think about that as being this process happening in 1969. Even though this comes so early in his career, it is something that really kind of defined what he wanted to do as a filmmaker. And I think if you watched Paris Belongs to Us and La Morfou as a double feature, you know, if you have that kind of time, you can definitely see similarities. And I think you can see how one sort of led to the other. But it's also even in terms of the context of the French New Wave, it's such a different film than anything anyone else was doing. And for people who aren't as familiar with the New Wave, there seem to sometimes be comparisons between Godard and Rivette because they're both not the most accessible directors. And they often focus on sort of breakdown of relationships, emotional breakdowns, but they do totally different things. And I, I think to to Jonathan's point, Rivette is somebody who really wanted to make it a collaborative experience. And even though he's often talked about 
sort of as one of those kind of auteur filmmakers. He was totally different from Godard in the sense that I don't think he was sort of pushing a particular vision. He was trying to explore a series of questions or a series of problems. That's what makes these so traumatizing to experience and definitely so transformative to experience because he doesn't allow you to have that exaggerated emotion that happens in in melodrama and that even happens in a lot of art house films that I don't think people would describe off the top of their head as melodrama. He just, it's sort of like to, I, I think Jonathan said this, but one of you definitely mentioned earlier in the episode that the scene of destruction in the apartment, it's it's not even as kind of, it's not like a Zhuavsky film where everything is sort of fever pitched and hysterical and over the top. It's, it's almost like defeated. And to me, it feels like he just, he's not saying act out this story. He's saying act out this particular emotion, but in, in a much more kind of realistic way. Like even though, I don't think anybody would talk about Rivette's films and say, oh, it's, you know, it's like neorealism or it borrows from a sort of documentary style. But he seems to want to explore the feelings and especially the emotional issues of regular people, but also of artists. And so this is something after La Morfou that shows up again and again in his films, where there's this sort of general structure of people who are acting in a play or even even if it's something like uh love on the ground it's not like they're at a theater preparing for a professional performance but there's this idea of people rehearsing and repeating things and trying to find some sort of way through it that he seems to suggest is not possible even though i think La Morfou does have this sort of positive or at least kind of cathartic ending. I always see Godard trying to be much more of a bad boy and him being more the star of the show. You know, this is a Godard film. It doesn't matter who's in it, but this is his film. And he was so captivated by Maoism and just trying to over-politicize things that just a little Godard goes a long way for me. Whereas a four-hour Rivette film I can handle. Oh, I like Kodar. I like some of the things that he did, but there were times where it was just like, okay, you're being a little much. Just He felt very bratty to me a lot of times. I could see that. <laughs> yeah, I like Godard a lot too. I wouldn't say there's a sort of a single film of Godard that means as much to me as, say, Out One or Sigmund Julie or La Mofie. That might just be the effect of the the length, because I guess you could maybe get three or four Godard films into, um, well, out, out one, I guess you could have about five Godard films at the <laughs> time of that. And uh, But yeah, I, I agree. I think they're doing slightly different things. And I think there is that sense that in a way, Rivette always seemed to be the kind of like the, the fifth person mentioned whenever people did the kind of roll call of new wave directors. And I think that- I know, it's so rude. And I think it is that effect of kind of almost falling between two stools because I think he doesn't have that kind of overt political radicalism that Godard has and uh, that kind of in-your-face sort of experimentation, even though I think you could 
I mean, you could make the case that he's actually more experimental than Godard, or at least he's on the totally. same. But it's it's not quite as spectacular somehow. It's not quite as overt or as aggressive. It's interesting. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time. <gasps> No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. I mean, I think the, the auteurist aspect is a case in point because Goddard, of course, is the one who forms a collective and becomes part of the Giga Vertov group. And yet... I think still does not really manage to submerge the kind of auteur personality within the collective, whereas Rivette in his kind of maybe quieter way, I think probably more successfully attains that end of, you know, collaborative filmmaking where, I mean, the actors, um, you know, in this case, you have like the documentary maker, you have other participants who, I mean, are central to that as well. I mean, I think in this case, um, you know, Boulogier and, Jean-Pierre Calfon, I mean, I think they contributed a lot to their characters. And I mean, I think also what's interesting in relation to the context is that I think of all the French New Wave directors, I think for me, Rivette is the one who has the most um, affinity or the most connection with, I think, some of the other art forms at the time. So for me, I think that the theatrical background um, or the theatrical setting in a film like this is really important because I think you have a lot of similarity with what people were doing with theatre, where you had like theatrical collectives and the idea of theatre or of performance as kind of psychodrama, living theatre or Grotowski or those kind of theatre workshop type formats. I mean, I think Rivet, I think both is kind of consciously referencing those. I mean, in the case of, say, Out One, where you have a lot of the theatre scenes are kind of like workouts really or they are kind of like forms of autotherapy as much as conventional performance and I think in in his own aesthetic and his own filmmaking practice he's also sort of imitating that idea I mean as far as I know I think um, I, I think that in the case of Out One I think there was a story about Jean-Pierre Leo having a kind of a a breakdown i think on camera i don't think it was actually used in the film but um apparently i think he did use that idea of film as a kind of self i guess autotherapy as a kind of catharsis and and uh, yeah i think you have that here too really in some of the some of the sort of later scenes i think between the couple i think they do start to feel a bit too and as and as we've said i mean they're harrowing but they're not not in that kind of melodramatic way it's quieter somehow isn't it but for me that that kind of relative quietness that relative unshowiness of those scenes makes it all the more powerful i i, I don't feel that we often see a relationship or a kind of a, uh, a breakdown portrayed in quite this sort of realistic way really and uh, yeah and of course as we've said i mean he's, he's not like it's not like he's a realistic director strictly speaking and yet there's something very authentic i think about those those later scenes 
there have been plenty of films that have had this idea of a film within a film or a play within a film. And usually you see the actual performance, but he's so much more interested in the rehearsals. I mean, that's something that happens in La Morfu and Out One and Love on the Ground in Gang of Four. You do get that sort of quieter sense, like you were talking about, where it does feel like it's it's less this sort of externalized event and more of the internal process that he's interested in showing you. And what's so interesting to me about the way that this film is different from all of his others is a lot of the other films are like almost all of his films. There's some degree of paranoia, whether there's like a thriller plot, the way there is in Paris belongs to us and like merry-go-round and and gang of four. But here, that sense of sort of plotting and manipulation and paranoia, it's not about some sort of external plot or event. It's all about the internal process that this actress is going through, that this relationship is going through. And what I love so much about the way he kind of juxtaposes the play rehearsals with the their sort of domestic scenes is that you see the ways in which the husband is sort of, as a theater director, he manipulates actors. And you also see how he manipulates his wife. And so I think in a weird way, it's this very kind of authentic portrayal of, I don't know if I want to call it an abusive relationship, but definitely a toxic relationship where it doesn't have those kind of like, like there's no sort of checklist the way there would be in a thriller or a melodrama about a relationship like this. It's like, yes, there are affairs and there's lying but it's so much quieter than that. And and like you were saying, I think that's what makes it feel so much more gutting. There's no spectacle to distract you from the very painful feelings that especially she is experiencing. The length really plays into that as well, because when you you were talking about marriage story and it's like, okay, yeah, here you go. 90 minutes. You got to get in and out within that. What with this they have the title cards that come up and show you the date. So there's the passing of time that way. But then you also just have the physical passing of time as you're experiencing this movie. And you get to experience more of these things as they go along. So you feel like you're being through this with them, this whole disintegration of the relationship, the cat and mouse games that they play, the kind of passive aggressive things that they do to each other. And you get to experience that more, not necessarily more or less in real time, but you get to experience that in a time that takes more time. You get to to blow that out and not just try to get things done in a scene. You can have multiple scenes of these, and you can have scenes that don't necessarily fully feel like they relate directly to the quote-unquote plot, but they add up into other things, like the whole thing of her trying to get a dog, and then the kitten, and just these little side stories play a part of this, even though if you were to chop those off, you would end up with something closer to, you know, a Kramer versus Kramer or a Bergman film, but they allow you to have that breathing room. 
there's kind of a nuanced thing as well, I think, isn't there, that that length allows for because you will have, you know, quite dramatic, quite harsh scenes. And then you will get something that where the couple seem to kind of make up again or you'll get a scene where they're in the bistro and they're seeming to be laughing and it's not that kind of straightforward you know step-by-step descent I mean you have sort of shades of you know light and dark it gets better it sort of like ebbs and flows and I think again there's a great sense of accuracy I think to that the way that I mean it's not all kind of you know down from here it kind of goes through variations and uh yeah, I think, again, the length really allows that kind of breathing space. Right. You have good days and you have bad days. It's not just all bad. As an audience member, you're not just sitting there going, why are you even with this guy? Or why are you even with this woman? She's crazy or any of these kind of things. You get to see the good and the bad and really feel that because having gone through relationships, I'm sure we've all experienced that whole thing of, oh, yeah, you know, this person, maybe they could be a little bit better. But yes, we have a good time over here and over there. But then you get like a really bad day. And it's just like, why am I even in this relationship? And that is what I think this film nails so perfectly in a way that like better than any other film is this, just this sort of idea, like he gradually shows you that, yes, this is a toxic relationship that neither of them should be in anymore. But he also shows you the ways in which people just kind of survive on a day to day level. Like, for the most part, even if your relationship is failing, and you're going through a breakup or a divorce, you're not mad every day. Like you have some of these totally normal scenes that they do. And I think they're so essential. Like you, if you cut them out, it would be a totally different film. And I don't think it would be anywhere near as effective. And one of the things that I've spent a lot of time thinking about while I rewatched this is this idea that Rivette focuses a lot on female protagonists, which is not necessarily something a lot of the other new wave directors did. And he's very careful to sort of explain in interviews that he didn't just want to make a film about, you know, this relationship is going badly and the woman is nuts and she's being totally crazy. But sort of what he was saying was that he thinks like this Pirandello quote he used about, I have thought about it and we are all mad. It's sort of everyone is nuts and you're just seeing her go through this really hard time where she's extremely isolated And I think what the second half of the film, especially sort of the last, I guess, act, you could call it, makes clear with that incredible scene of him tearing up his clothing, makes clear that they're both sort of equally having a breakdown because of the dissolution of their relationship. And it's not just sort of this hysterical woman and this guy who doesn't care and wants to get away from her. It's just so much deeper than that. And he takes such a long time to show you that in, in a way that I think is just really kind of vital to that traumatizing yet transformative quality of the film. That was one of the things that most struck me when I saw it, you know, the way it portrays that kind of process of 
breakdown, uh, psychic breakdown. And uh, I think the fact that it is mutual, as you say, that it, it seems to be kind of, it's almost like it's transferred sort of like halfway through where he starts to take on the same um, signs of behavior. And I think just the way it portrays that sense of withdrawal, like withdrawal from other people. I mean, that to me is quite, quite a unique way of portraying breakdown, but also I think very accurate. I mean, uh, but I, I can't think of many movies where you get that, just that sense of kind of cutting oneself off in that kind of, you know, quiet sort of morose way, like the scene where Sebastian tears the clothes. I mean, I guess if that were another movie, it would be it would be done in a much more, as you say, excessive way. But there's something kind of like childlike and and pathetic, isn't there, about the way he does it? It's not this kind of big dramatic moment. In a way, there are a lot of things about La Morfou that remind me of some of Zhuavsky's films, but many of which are about the extremely traumatizing breakdown of relationships. But in his films, they're, they're sort of like opposite sides of the same coin. Because, you know, if I just said to somebody, oh, you know, they destroy their apartment, he tears apart all his clothes, it sounds like something that people in a Zhuavsky film would do. But in a Zhuavsky film, sort of like you're saying, it's so dramatic and so like hysterical and frenzied and over the top. And here, a lot of the quote unquote crazy actions are just really sort of subdued and sad and pathetic in a way that as a person who has probably everyone over a certain age has been through this kind of relationship breakdown, it's so easy to relate to. I can't remember where I read the um, original description that I, I had in my mind when I saw the film. It might have been in James Monaco's book about the new way, but I think he does mention, you know, there is this incredible sequence where the couple trash their, they destroy their apartment. And yeah, I think it does set you up for this big hysterical scene. And, and the way that plays out, I mean, firstly, I think again, because of the length, it's actually quite a long sequence. It's not just like a single climactic scene it actually takes place i mean i couldn't say exactly how many minutes but it it, it it it's a long sequence that i think goes through maybe it goes through sort of a couple of days it's maybe not something that's all within one time period and there's so many takeaways from that sequence i think it's very um in a way, there's almost something liberatory. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. In the way that, I mean, they sort of embrace these sort of childish activities, you know, drawing on the walls 
cutting things out. And um, I think in a film would have so much imagery about cutting and laceration. This is almost like one moment where that is used in a sort of a more positive and more innocent way. And the way it develops is really interesting too, because at the end of that sequence, I mean, pretty much the relationship is over, isn't it? By the end of that, I think um, Claire says, you know, we've played enough now, or we've played too much. That's it. And it's almost like drawing a line under the whole the whole thing and uh yeah i think it gives as many things to work with it's um i mean again we could look at that in terms of autotherapy embracing a kind of regressive identity um and yet it doesn't work it comes to this hiatus and uh yeah i'm still i'm still reflecting on that scene in my head i think if you even compare it to another new wave film godard made contempt a few years before this which is on the surface, kind of a similar plot about this this writer who's a, who's also a filmmaker and his actress wife and their relationship starts to break down during the making of a film and, you know, there are affairs and there's a, a really long scene in an apartment where they get into this awful fight. But even though those sort of plot points are similar on paper – it almost feel, it almost feels a little unfair to Godard because it's, it sort of seems like Rivette's like okay, I see what you did there. And for anyone who hasn't seen Contempt, it's pretty brutal. Like you walk away from it feeling kind of devastated. But it, it's sort of like Rivette was like, all right, hold my beer. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Contempt times a thousand, but so much more restrained in a way that you know we keep talking about that just feels so much more devastating. And I think a lot of that is because Ogier is so central. I mean, she worked with Rivette a lot, but this really is a film that she pretty much carries in a lot of ways, even though she's not in every scene. And that performance is incredible. Like, I think it's one of my favorite, probably top 20 performances of all time. She has an incredible presence. There's something that is so sort of haunted and even unnerving about her, I think, just about her expression, her face, and uh, I think the way she portrays that sense of withdrawal and of of pain. Yeah, I, I think, and it's so subtle. I think um, I think Calfon is great too, but as you say, I think, yeah, hers is really the the kind of the performance that, that carries and leads it, leads everybody else, I think. The shots of her with that little trickle of blood on her face oh. or when she is recording the lines for the play at home or making that, uh, I guess it would be almost like a sound effect tape that she's doing. Those scenes are so fascinating. She is just so thrilling to watch, just doing whatever. she Because you never know what she's going to do. And I just appreciate her so much in this film. She just gives such a, a masterclass performance. Towards the end of the film, where she really sort of starts to sink into this isolated state, and uh, she's kind of alone in the one of the apartment rooms, and she's she's kind of just like looking at the wallpaper. And, uh, she's looking. I think you can see like the sort of like the crack under the door with the light coming through. And I mean, it almost made me think of um, Repulsion. I yes, think, thank uh, you. I mean, she could have done Repulsion. I think just as well, perhaps as Catherine Deneuve, and uh, I think there's that sense of. A, almost like environmental oppression. I mean, that is, it's an incredible space as well, I think, that, that use of the apartment, because I, I don't know about 
you guys, but I, I, I found it hard to kind of work out how many rooms there are in the apartment. It seems to kind of keep changing, really. And then, of course, when they destroy it, it becomes a different space again. And uh, it seems to take on sort of different characteristics, I think, as the characters change. Yeah, he has this, not just in La Marfou, but he has this really, really incredible use of spaces that happens throughout his films that is one of my favorite things about him as a director. I mean, definitely it happens in Paris Belongs to Us with Paris and with these like tiny little apartments. But I think even after, I, I think maybe La Morfou is where he kind of starts using spaces, especially domestic spaces, as this almost surreal kind of changeable representation of somebody's psyche because it definitely happens in Celine and Julie where the house seems to change it happens in merry-go-round where they kind of go to these different houses that are supposed to hold some sort of riddle it happens i think a lot in love on the ground which is set in this really love on the ground is incredible if uh mike you you should totally watch it and we should do another episode but it's it's a similar sort of thing where this guy invites these people to this mansion and then has them act out different scenes in this play and you get the sense that there's some sort of conspiracy or mystery and so i think that's something that he was really interested in kind of exploring how, especially with his budgetary restraints, how you could make a lot out of a space and have it be sort of oppressive and changing. And I, I definitely agree. Like it's hard to get a fixed idea of their house, which I think is super intentional. And you've got that whole contrast, I think, between the domestic space and then the space of the yes. of the stage. And I think uh, it's interesting that I think it's Mary Wiles in her book on Rebecca. She says that space functions as many things. You know, you could say it's like a stage of combat. It's like a boxing ring. I don't want to bring in Scorsese again, but <laughs> I think oh, there you. <laughs> Rebecca was onto that. I think that idea of you know you can use this sort of this white space of uh you know of, of the stage or the boxing ring to represent you know various kinds of personal conflict and uh i think also the way that you begin with that kind of white blank space i mean uh, to me i think it relates back to that idea of process and of modernism because i guess there's that whole fascination of modernism with the idea of like the blank page or the blank space and it's this idea of a a uh, space that you can con- continually transform and uh, i almost feel that when you compare like the domestic space to the theatrical space it's almost as though when you go back into that theatrical space you go back into a slightly more positive space because you get that opportunity for a kind of dynamic change you get um a space where the relationships can kind of work themselves out more and of course you have that intercutting between the 16 millimeter and the 35 millimeter film. So you get this con- constant sort of visual alternation of styles. And um, I think, I mean, I think most of the domestic scenes are quite static, aren't they? I think the camera doesn't really move a lot in those scenes. Whereas I think in the theater scenes, you get a lot of kind of different kinds of setups. You get like overhead shots, you get a lot of handheld camera. And it's almost like there's a sense of, 
suddenly we can move again when we're in this space. And um, yeah, I think I think he's really a master of the way that he can sort of create these different kinds of space, I think, and create this this tension between them. I mean, what is the whole thing with the room that was closed off? That seems so odd to me that they live in this place and they have this closed off room. And it almost seems like they're discovering it for the first time, even though there are things in there that are obviously theirs. It's like a Jalo movie. And I, I think Rivette does that a few times, doesn't he? he? He sets up that idea of mysterious spaces. I remember in out one i think towards the end there is a character i think he's called pierre that you never see and there's a sort of this i think in one of the final episodes there's there's this whole sequence in this beach house and this character called pierre who may be kind of one of the figures orchestrating this whole sort of conspiracy that the film revolves around he may be in this room or he may not be uh i'm kind of like going off my memory of seeing it 14 years ago but i just have this very powerful memory that there is this room and this character may be inside it and in its own sort of like weird sort of rarefied way it becomes almost kind of yeah almost like a giallo or like a horror movie that is definitely something he does throughout his films and i also remember that from out one but there's sort of like this whole block of movies in a row from the 80s that have things like that, like Love on the Ground definitely does, his adaptation of Wuthering Heights, which is incredible, Gang of Four, La Belle Noiseuse. It's like they're all set in these weird mansions or weird houses that appear to have lots of rooms. And he does this really interesting thing with some of his thrillers that I love, where what seems like a totally normal domestic space suddenly takes on different dimensions or a different quality once the characters learn that something is hidden there, like there's some sort of a key to something or some kind of clue or some sort of secret. He has such an interesting way of taking the characters, sort of like you were saying with the contrast between domestic and theatrical spaces in this film, It's like he has reasons to take people out of their domestic space, usually for some something related to art, whether it's theater or painting, like in La Belle Noiseuse. But once it's like when they go back and forth between the spaces, they change and the spaces change in a way that I don't think a lot of other directors do. Yes, there is a sort of yes, it's like a, a mutual transformation between the spaces and the characters. Yeah, I, I um, maybe reading too much into it, but I couldn't help noticing when you look at like the patterning of the wallpaper, which I think you do get more aware of as the film goes on. I think towards the end, you know, you really get that sense of this oppressive, you know, patterned wallpaper, uh, which reminds me of the, the Charlotte Perkins Gilman story, the yellow wallpaper, which is all about how oppressive this patterning is and uh, to me it almost looks like the design on sebastian's shirt there's almost like this kind of visual affinity between the clothes that he's wearing these quite striking shirts that he has and the wallpaper maybe i'm just reading too much into that no i don't think so but i also way overread everything so i'm a, i am i agree with You're you but right i'm place. perhaps a poor judge <laughs> He totally does. And I think that's something that happens because he introduces this air of paranoia. And if you have a certain type of personality, 
you, you like, I love seeing patterns in things, which is why I often will like, that's just what my brain wants to do, which is why I often will watch a certain director's movies or movies of a certain theme, like a whole bunch of them in a row. And with his films, because they're so long, you immediately start trying to find connections to your point earlier about how watching his films is it's sort of a process in which you as a spectator are taking part in doing work. I think sometimes you see patterns or you see possible connections that he introduces. And then I think sometimes you just find some of your own that he didn't necessarily intend to be there, which I think is part of what makes him such a brilliant filmmaker, but also such a strange one. He brilliantly kind of treads that line, I think, between an ultimate kind of controlling vision and this kind of more radical sense of openness. I think it's Jonathan Rosenbaum who says, like, you know, you can position him between, on the one hand, Lang, Fritz Lang, and this kind of sense of geometry and of structure. And then on the other hand, Renoir, with the sense of freedom and spontaneity. And I think Boulogier said something about Rivette where she called him, you know, the great manipulator, because she said that he would encourage improvisation. And, you know, you'd think that he was allowing you this great freedom, I guess, in her case, as a as an actor, but ultimately, he would be sort of directing you towards something that he had planned. So I think there's always this kind of, yeah, this dialectic between, you know, what he is intending or what, what a process that he is determining and that kind of freedom of interpretation or that freedom of uh, performance. And um, what's interesting too is, of course, that process of interpretation is actually thematized directly because I guess like in this film or I think in Out One more, overtly i mean it is about characters who are themselves trying to find patterns in reality and it's this idea that you know there may be this conspiracy that is out there you know you may be reading these things correctly putting these clues together or it may just be this kind of paranoid fantasy and uh, i think he kind of respects that ambiguity he doesn't really give you um too much you know hint either way and uh, i think here i think you could see that in two characters i think on the one hand you know you have claire who is making the tape recordings i think partly by the end as a kind of evidence against sebastian and so she's putting together these sounds these conversations to sort of create a kind of pattern through the tape recording of her vision of reality her interpretation of the events and then of course you also have uh, i think his name is andre labart the the documentary maker who is kind of always digging isn't he trying to find what's really happening between these people. And he's creating, I guess, his own pattern. He's creating his, his own vision within the film. And it is interesting that we get to see what he's seeing. We don't just see the 35 camera that we get to see what the 16 is seeing as well, which gives us this kind of privileged look at things. He actually let that actor direct those sequences, correct? He was an actual television director that I think he worked with on that um, Renoir documentary. What's so interesting to me about those scenes, which you can also see in some of his other films, is he frequently includes these characters who are literal directors, whether like in this film, you know, you have a theater director and you have the documentary director, but they sort of turn up elsewhere throughout his films over the years. And he, I think 
makes some very interesting commentary on himself in the way that he sort of writes those characters. And of course, the way that they wind up in his films, they're, they're often extremely manipulative. And they're characters who think they have complete control over a situation or over a particular narrative. But ultimately, I think most of the time it winds up, and I think this is especially the case in Out One, where the director is shown to sort of be flawed and not as in control as he thinks he is, or his manipulations have a negative effect on some of the other characters. And it's just really interesting to me that that's a theme he returns to again and again. And and I do think he said that there were biographical elements to La Morfou. Yes, I think I read uh, that he wanted to, that he, he wanted to cast Cal Thorne because there was no physical resemblance, uh, and so it would not <laughs> it would not uh, it would not uh, reveal or it would not be obvious that autobiographical connection. Um, but yeah, I, I'm I'm very intrigued by that uh, statement, really. But yes, I've read that. I think that it there was a, a I think of. of, of it's quite a rare thing too. I don't think that in many of his films he admitted to any autobiographical dimension, but I think here and in I can't remember the other one he mentioned, but I think yeah, definitely here there is some yeah, there is some parallel somehow. And uh yeah, I think Sebastian is kind of an in- interesting director too. I think the way that he's sort of constantly reflecting on his own directorial process. And I, I see him almost like a kind of a, a less successful version of what Rivette is trying to do, because I think in one way he's trying to, I guess he's trying to modernize the text that he's working with and trying to create um, a kind of performance that will be honest and that will not necessarily be stylized and in the traditional uh, quatrain form. And uh, I think he wants to create something where the actors will be somehow expressing their own feelings. But of course, as it goes on, I mean, he he withdraws more and more from the process. And uh, it's almost like giving up control, but in a, in a negative way. It's really about losing control rather than about consciously inviting others to collaborate. Can you imagine Rivette ever wearing any of Sebastian's shirts, though? <laughs> I hope he doesn't wear his glasses like Sebastian wore his glasses. <laughs> yeah, that was driving that is, me nuts. <laughs> I do quite like the shirt with, I think it looks like it's got like vegetables and fruits on it. Yes. Quite a, yeah, quite cute in a way, I think. <laughs> they are very 1969. The other film that he mentions as being sort of autobiographical is Out One. And earlier you brought up how there's the scene uh, where Leo breaks down that's cut out of the film and i forget who but there's definitely uh another film critic film historian who speculated that maybe rivette cut that out not to spare leo's feelings but because he thought it was too autobiographical and he related it to to it too much and i don't think we've said anything yet about Rivette's mental state, which was not always the best. And a few years after this, in the sort of late 70s, he had a mental breakdown of his own. So I I think it's important when you watch his films to sort of understand the type of person he was. Yes, it was the film with uh, Albert Finney and Leslie Caron, I think, wasn't it? Which was, I think, called Marie and Julian. And then later yes. on, he, he returned to that project. And he, he 
made a film called um, uh, The Story of Mar- Murray and Julian with the yeah, man- like, tw- like 20 years later. <laughs> yeah, it was a <laughs> long gestation. There's only like a couple of shots, I think, that, that, that were made and that have never been never been found. And uh, yeah, I find that so sad because I almost feel that, I mean, if you just look at the, at the, at the films, I mean, it's almost like I feel that from Lamorfu throughout one, I mean, you go really through this kind of descent into this very dark place. And I almost feel like Celine and Julie is the film that kind of brings us out of that. It's almost like that for me is the redemptive film out of the three. And it's sad to think that, I mean, a little later, he, he went through this, this breakdown again. Well, it's interesting to hear some of the other new wave directors talk about him and some of the other like Cahiers du Cinema founders who mention like the way they talk about him is like he's some sort of mystical wizard from another dimension. Like even even Godard, who and we've talked a lot of shit on Godard in this episode, and I'm for that I am sorry. But even Godard has this thing where he basically says that whatever Rivette thought about a film, everybody kind of treated as gospel. Like whether you liked something or you thought it was bad, if Rivette said it was good, everyone was like, okay, well, he knows something we don't, so it must be good. But they talk about how he looks like he never ate or slept or (laughs) like, is just this sort of imp from another dimension. Mm, which I guess is as he would have liked it, isn't it? This idea of this yes. kind of magus kind of string pulling figure, but uh, yeah, very mysterious. Because I, I think for a long time, very little was known about his personal life, really. I think people just thought he lived by himself. And apparently he, I think he was married a couple of times and uh, I think had, you know, quite a, I guess, quote unquote, normal life. But yeah, I think he was for a long time, this very mysterious figure that people didn't really know much about. New, that's interesting in relation to the French New Wave, which I guess is kind of very much kind of like an autobiographical movement, isn't it? It's very much synonymous with a kind of cinematic autobiography. And yeah, it's interesting that he was the most withdrawn and yet at the same time in his own way, the most candid, I think, in terms of the, the processes that he shows you and that he makes you go through. Oh, definitely. And the co-writer of this film is Maria Parolini, who was his partner for a number of years, and I think who he was actually married to. Hopefully, she didn't inspire him to cut up his clothes. The one thing that we haven't talked about, and I, I am not familiar with the Adramake play at all, but that being the play that they're rehearsing, I'm curious if you guys are familiar with it or have any sort of opinions as far as why that has to be the particular play that's in this. Andromache or Andromache is a Racine play. And Racine is basically the French Shakespeare. I I feel like that's a pretty easy way to think about him. He's like his plays are some of the most popular classical plays in French theater history. And so I think if you're watching this as a French person, it has a totally different resonance than a native English speaker. And the reason that it pretty much has to be this play, it's so, it's sort of like what a lot of directors do with Hamlet, where Hamlet is often, you know, a reference or a play within a play to talk about sort of the nature of morality and mortality and blah, blah, blah. But Andromache is based on this Greek myth that is basically about this super horrendous situation that comes in the wake of the Trojan War, where 
all of these characters become obsessed with another character. And so it becomes this sort of loop of romantic obsession where no one is able to get what they want or who they want. And it's a tragedy. So it ends with a bunch of people killing themselves and going mad. And I feel like that's, those are the, the Cliff's Notes version. Well, I can definitely see why that was the play then. And then also that why Sebastian was playing Pyrrhus, the, uh, the, um, whole king, um, of the play, the son of Achilles. So, okay. Uh, that, that makes a lot more sense. Thank you. Yeah. Pyrrhus is basically the one who on the surface level is pulling the strings, but he really wants to marry Andromache from what I remember, but she won't, she, she like wants to uh, honor the memory of her dead husband, who is Hector. And, so she doesn't really want a relationship with anyone, but eventually is sort of forced to agree to marry Pyrrhus in order to spare her son, but has this very gruesome plan where if her if her son's safety can be guaranteed, she's going to marry Pyrrhus and then on their wedding night kill herself so that, so that everything works out in that sort of psychotic way that happens with Greek tragedy. And then is is Hermione the wife of Pyrrhus? Is that right? And I think that's is that the role that Claire and then Marta play? Yes, one of the characters who sets the events in motion is Orestes, who shows up and demands the death of Astyanax, who is Andromache's son. But I think Orestes falls in love with uh, Hermione and Hermione wants nothing to do with it. So it's like everybody wants someone they can't have. And that sort of connected to all these political events going on at court. And it's, it's one of those, like there are a lot of Greek myths and I should stop calling it a Greek tragedy because it is a French play that had a lot of, like there are all these sort of, historical and political parallels to the French court at the time and sort of people leveraging relationships off of each other. And Racine did that a lot throughout his plays. But I think it works so well here because it's really a play about people's obsessions making them absolutely nuts. Like by the end of the play, everyone's a dead or insane. Because I, yeah, I wondered whether we're meant to take it that Rivet assumed the knowledge, which I think, I guess, as you say, in the case of a French audience, especially at that, in those kind of more educated times, I guess, in the late 60s, I mean, people would have, especially as a French audience, would have known the story quite well. And um, I guess, at the, on the other hand, the fact that, I mean, he cuts it up into little bits and that you never really get that sense of the, the narrative, I guess, serves that sort of modernist aesthetic. And uh, I, I, I did feel that at certain points he's pointing towards parallels between the action and and the story. And I remember towards the end there's a scene where Sebastian um, directs the two of the actors to kind of lie down, doesn't he, in a fetal position. And he's bringing his own, I guess, psychic state into the, the play's action there in quite a direct way. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, I do think it is parallel to Shakespeare in the sense that 
I think a lot of people who have have seen those sorts of Shakespearean references in art house movies, usually if you hear the names of characters and you like hear a scene, you don't need to be told the whole story to say, oh, wait, right, I know what this is about. But yeah, a little shorthand, cultural shorthand. Totally. And to your point much earlier about how he's really interested in exploring this idea of experimental theater that's happening at the time and that is such a big focus of Out One, those people who probably would be interested in seeing this film definitely like that idea of like modernizing the play and cutting up the scenes to, to sort of serve your own narrative purpose is, is the most important part. So I I think it's like, nobody really cares about the actual sort of, you know, Orestes is there trying to get her to kill her son and blah, blah, blah. It's really more, everyone's driving each other nuts. I guess it's parallel maybe to what Peter Brook was doing in the UK and then I guess later on in France too, where he was, I guess, often taking Shakespeare and yeah, using it as this, yeah, in a way springboard for, yeah, this kind of radical theatrical experimentation. And uh, it's interesting that Rivet in this period, I mean, tends to use classical texts. I mean, I think it's only really, as I remember, I could be wrong, but it's only really when you get to Vassavoir in the 2000s that he uses a 20th century play when it, I think that's a Pirandello play actually which again I guess is is significant but in um, uh, Paris News of Partian it's uh, Shakespeare I think isn't it Pericles yes. and then I think in Out One it's uh, Aeschylus so I think he likes that idea of going back to classical text because partly I think it gives you that sense of license to manipulate them to turn them into these more visual kinds of theatre and also I think it bring it, it brings in this idea of theatre as ritual so I think um, that kind of ritualized um, quality is there isn't it really in this in this case where you have like the uh, percussive element like the sound equipment that you see towards the end and I think that the kind of classicism of those texts I think lends itself more to that idea of theatre as ceremony or as ritual. Oh totally and that is something that I think is so central to his work in general. And that, you know, obviously other directors like Derek Jarman were doing their own versions of that. I mean, Zhuavsky uses theatrical references, but he does it in, it's like he just goes so deeply into it in a way that other directors don't. I mean, Gang of Four, he also like, the the basic sort of plot of Gang of Four is there are all these acting students, these women who live together in this house. And it's a similar thing where they go back and forth between domestic and th- theatrical spaces. And they're all taking this acting class together, which is actually run by Ogier uh, in a very different role than the one she has here, sort of the opposite role. And it's a similar thing where I want to say they're rehearsing different scenes from different classical plays. I think it might be Racine again, but it's, he just uses it like in such an interesting way to work out kind of psychodrama and to allow people to transform. And I don't think other, when other directors use theater within their films, I don't think anyone else uses it in the same way where there's that focus on, 
kind of rehearsal and repetition that leads to transformation. It's so interesting. It's one of the things that I think makes Rebet a hard sell, I think, because as you were saying, I, I feel the same about recommending him. And I think there is that baggage that, well, you know, a lot of his plays revolve around theater, um, around literature. And I think it's easy to kind of get the impression, especially like if you've just read about them, that they are very kind of theatrical in a kind of bad way, in a sort of the sense that they're kind of static and that they're not cinematic enough and that they're too talky. And yet, I think what he's doing with theatre, I mean, paradoxically, I think is something very cinematic. I think he's interested in performance, which is also, you know, film performance too. I think he's interested in in extending that idea of the performance as psychic workout to what he's doing on screen with his own actors. So I think it's not about, you know, making stage bound films, but it's about, you know, using what is radical, what is transformative about theatre and then extending that to film aesthetics as well. So, I mean, in a sense, I mean, he is a theatrical director in a literal sense, but I think he's also taking something from theatre, which, as you say, I think not many film directors have really explored i think they've not really explored that really vital sort of um uh thing that connects i think theater and film performance and 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 uh yeah i think he's doing something really unique with theater i I can't think of many other directors who who do that i think even peter brook doesn't do it in his own films much as i like say marassad i think he he, he's not kind of at the place that rivette is at say in out one or lamorfu directors like Derek Jarman and even Peter Greenaway are doing something more like Marat Saad, where they're using a pl- a filmed version of a play to sort of introduce all of these themes, but it's not the same as what Rivette is doing. He's far to me, and I, I know you brought this up earlier, but I think he's far and away the most radical member of the French New Wave. Like his like it, you could say that some of them are experimental, especially Godard or, you know, some of the left bank directors, but I think he's trying to do things with cinema that nobody else has tried. And I think if he was just interested in the plays themselves, then he would just be a theater director. And to your point, I, I do think he was using cinema for a specific purpose to sort of work out some of those things that kind of obsessed him and to use theater in a different, in a totally different way. And yeah, it's very easy to get the wrong impression. I think just from written descriptions, just because there's very little else that's, that's like this, I think. And thus to your point, recommending it to people is hard, but those people are cowards and they should watch it anyway. Come and watch this 12-hour movie and it's just people sort of on stage kind of screaming and, and having breakdowns. And <laughs> You want to die this, by the end. <laughs> looking for this conspiracy that may or may not exist. We were just talking about Viennese actionists the other day, so oh, at least it's yay. better than that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, I love them. <laughs> well, they're great, but at least this is a little less uh, fecal, let's say. It's less fecal, but I feel like there's a similar sense of bloodshed and sacrifice, albeit maybe in a psychic way. You, we were talking about patterns earlier. The shots that are between the shots, those those shots that are between the scenes where we've got like the longer scenes and then there'll be a quick shot or even just within the middle of a scene, there'll be a quick shot. And 
Sometimes it's back to the theater if we're at the apartment. Sometimes it's to the apartment if we're at the theater. And then sometimes it's just something completely else. And I love those moments. And I love the moments where he is working with the darkness, with black and cutting to black, especially at the end of this movie when he is doing those cuts to black with just her voiceover. Just beautiful, beautiful stuff. Again, there is that interplay between, I think, the fact that, I mean, a lot of the time he uses quite long takes, but then you also get this interest in editing and in cutting. And I think he does this in Out One as well, where you get these just these frames of Black Leader, which um, are a kind of way of punctuating a scene. or um, And it's almost comparable to the tape recorder, isn't it? The sort of on and off device. And, uh, yeah, I, 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 I like those little cutaways that you get say to bistros or to cafes and i almost feel there's a little bit of a hiatus there from sort of the the bleakness of the domestic scenes and i noticed watching it again that um it cuts to the um the scene of um the couple with other people in i think it's in a bistro or in a cafe and it i'm not really sure whether that's meant to be sort of the same scene or whether it's happening at different moments, but they're wearing the same clothes. And I, I wasn't sure whether that's meant to be kind of like a flashback or is this something that is happening at the same period? But it's interesting that in those scenes, they tend to be kind of happy and jovial and they're quite different from the mood of the other scenes around them. In a way, those scenes, and I, I totally agree with you, it's very hard to tell is this supposed to be a cut up flashback? Is it? And, and it seems like in the first almost half of the movie, there are all these scenes of them eating, whether they're eating privately at home together or eating out in a restaurant. But it sort of struck me this time around that those scenes in the restaurant are sort of a performance of their own and are contrasted by the way that they act together at home. So it's sort of like, okay, their relationship is disintegrating. But like we were talking about earlier, you know, it's not an abrupt, steady decline. Like there are many days where things seem fine, or even just days where you don't want to deal with it. So you act like everything's normal. And I don't know if I got that sense the first time I watched this, but this time around, it definitely seems like when they're performing as a couple in front of people, it's just, we're laughing, we're having a good time, we're keeping this drama private. And I'm sort of now wondering if he did that intentionally to sort of show you different aspects of their relationship and the ways that they act in sort of more honest ways and less honest ways. And the fact that they're kind of in different clothing i guess would indicate that yeah there is a sort of a performative aspect to the public the public life that they're wearing because they're, they're almost wearing matching clothes i think in the uh the sort of social cafe scenes which is interesting so it's almost like a costume yeah and again that could be me reading too much into this it's revet so probably not it's all there for the taking i think <laughs> The changes of time, it's not something that I could say for sure, uh, having just watched this the one time. But I think had I watched this a few more times, I would probably start to say like, oh, I think this actually takes place at this point. I mean, that we have the same sounds and things being repeated at the beginning and end of the film. It's just like, 
was this a flashback? Was this her sitting at the cafe and thinking about these things or something? I would probably come up with some sort of cockamamie theory about that stuff, but having it just watched the one time and having watched this really beat to shit kind of uh, video print that we, we have, I'm also having a hard time watching and telling this is the 16 mil footage. This is the 35. I can tell a lot of times when we're doing those shifts, but I'm sure that you guys having seen this in a theater, it would have been a much more of a radical shift for you. The sort of interplay of elements is not meant to be, I guess, entirely clear. And I think on the one hand, he's using one kind of structure, which is like the flashback structure, but he's also sort of problematizing that because i guess uh, i mean a flashback structure usually indicates a sort of a clear point of focus like a, a clear sort of subjectivity that we're getting this from but uh it's interesting because here and i, th- I think mary wiles makes a similar point in her book that on the one hand i mean the the point of consciousness is claire because it's her tape recorded voice that we tend to hear and yet the figure sitting alone sort of playing that back is sebastian so that's, I guess, one element of ambiguity, you know, who is the one remembering this? And then on the other hand, there's also the sort of technical mediation, but the fact that it's a tape recorder. And I noticed actually watching the very beginning that I think he, he rewinds the tape, doesn't he? So it's this very interesting parallel, you know, rewinding the tape and then basically like rewinding back the events that have happened and then you go from that to the the slate so you have that other element where you have the documentary crew and what they're seeing what they're showing so i mean where does that fit in how does that fit into the the memories of the of the couple yeah he does some really amazing things in this film but definitely throughout his films with this sort of blurring between different people's perspectives and this idea of what's happening in the present versus someone's memory or maybe their fantasy or misinterpretation of an event. And I definitely agree that a much more conventional filmmaker would make it very clear, okay, this is a dream sequence, or this particular scene is a flashback. But he totally refuses to do that. And I think in a way, he's sort of saying to you that it doesn't matter what's real and what's perceived or imagined and that the way that their relationship breaks down it's not just because of these specific events of you know who's right and who's wrong it's sort of the sum total of all of those things and he does that in different ways in some of his other films when they're maybe kind of like out one or merry-go-round where they're presented as thrillers or like a mystery that somebody's trying to solve. But I think the same sort of logic applies here where I don't want to call it outright surrealism or magical realism or anything like that. He's so much more nebulous that I think that's part of what makes watching his films a fascinating experience, but also sort of a difficult one is that you just never know what's real or when things are happening like you have no sense of time and that's kind of erratic as well isn't it i noticed i think towards the end i think you you have a quite a long stretch without any sort of information like that it, 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 i think early on maybe in the first half you get more of those sort of title cards with the days and then it it seems to sort of it seems to uh 
yeah, it's like he gets tired of that device. And it, it, I think you maybe just because you get a lot of things happening in one day. But uh, I think there's, yeah, there's that whole, I think, interplay between what is real, what is imagined, what is past and present. And uh, I think that's another reason why it's hard to really place him or to recommend him because i mean you can't say that he's like a realistic filmmaker but you can't really say that he's like a fantasy or a surrealist filmmaker either in an obvious sense i mean i think the um i've read that the title of lamorfu came from andre breton's book lamorfu so i guess there was a, a sort of a conscious uh, reference to surrealism but uh I think if his films are surrealist, I guess it's more in the original sense that they're concerned with chance and with this idea of, you know, everydayness, like everyday life yielding something that is mysterious. But uh, they're not surrealist in the way that, I mean, say it's taken obvious figure like David Lynch or somebody is. Maybe some of his films are more than others. Like I, I think you could call Celine and Julia surrealist film, but a couple of years ago, I wrote an essay on merry-go-round for this cinema journal. And one of the things that I talked about was that he uses surrealism in the same way that Fiat and sort of the, the French crime serials use it, where exactly like you're saying, it's about the sort of intrusion of random chance into a narrative. And I think here it happens maybe less than in his other films, but there is that idea that we were talking about earlier where you feel like you never know what's going to happen next. And there are things that happen, like especially her use of the tape recorder that have this sort of jarring, almost kind of uncanny feeling where you just don't understand why certain things are happening. And he is not ever big on exposition, thankfully. But it's just this this sort of sense of you don't know what the hell is going on in this film and you're just going to have to sign up for the full four hours to figure it out. Yes, the sound is really interesting, I think, isn't it? Because sometimes, you know, you do get what is, I guess, the tape recordings coming over the image. But then I, I think the entire movie um, has a lot of, like, non-synchronous sound. So, I mean, it's not always clear, like, is this his own device as a director? So, for instance, when you hear the crashing waves, I think during that scene in the apartment or when they're on the balcony, or is it meant to reflect her tape recordings? I think it leaves you that ambiguity. Definitely. And it's so effective. And I think it's, in a way, more kind of experimental, because he's not just working with, you know, different sort of effects or techniques where the camera is concerned, but he also brings in this whole other audio layer that becomes so emotional, in a way, because it's especially where her recording is concerned. I just I love that element so much. And there's, I think the use of motifs too is, is I would say, I would put that maybe in a surrealist tradition. I think the use Definitely. of, there's a lot of mirrors, I think, here, aren't there? And I think that um, Andre Breton talked about love in terms of a hall of mirrors or a series of endlessly reflecting mirrors. And I think there's a lot of mirror imagery here um, at different points. Well, especially that end scene where he just stops while he's walking to the theater and looks at himself in that mirror for so long. All of the mirror scenes here 
are just sort of an intro to the completely insane use of mirrors in Out 1, where there is that great scene, that sort of iconic scene where she looks at herself in the mirror and it just sort of reflects on and on and on. Oh, yeah. Into Infinity. I've seen that still, and that's one of those really striking images. One of those images that is just like, I need to see the movie that this image is contained within. That also does come at the same kind of climactic point, more or less, doesn't it, as it does in La Morphue. It does. I don't know that you can really have an actual spoiler in a Rivette film. Like, you you could give away a plot point, and somebody might say, like, damn it, why why would you tell me that this character kills themselves or that this thing happens? And it's like, yeah, well, if you make it the full 11 hours, then you can be worried. But, like, there are no spoilers in Rivette films, I don't think. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back after these brief messages. How to continue a television series after a major actor has left the cast. Part 1. The Quatermass Method. Simply recast a new actor in the original role. Hope that no one notices that a familiar character now looks completely different. This was also famously used in the James Bond films. For more about British science fiction television, listen to the British Invaders podcast at www.britishinvaders.com. Hey fans, this is Reverend Scott. Just want to tell you about Outside the Cinema. Great company. They review cult films, any cult film, every cult film. And it's something you should tune into. So if you get a chance, go to the website, look these guys up, Outside the Cinema, and find out what the hot cult films are today. What's going on? These guys are right on the cutting edge of reviewing cult movies. And if you're a cult member, or you want to be a cult member, or you're thinking about being a cult member, your mom's a cult member, your dad's a cult member, your damn mother-in-law's a cult member, tune in outside the cinema, baby, and you'll find out what's going on. Reverend Scott, and that's out. Hi there, faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep-dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcasts Catchers, both Android and iOS. This is Adam Spiegelman from the Cult Movie Podcast, proudly resents, and you listen to my favorite movie podcast, The Projection Booth. I know it's messed up, right? talking about Lamor Fu. And so being a Rivette novice, I did want to ask you guys, should I just 
start with Paris belongs to us and go that way? Or should I start at the end and come backwards? Where should I go next with this? This is really difficult because I am sort of a OCD style completist. And that's why I decided to go in more or less in chronological order. But I think some of his later films might be a little more accessible, like something like La Belle Noiseuse, I think is a good starting point in some ways. But Paris Belongs to Us is great if you want to focus on his earlier stuff, because it does have a lot of those really fascinating themes like, you know, performance and breakdown of relationships and this idea of sort of thriller tropes and paranoia and conspiracy, but it's not as long. Part of me thinks you should just go for it and watch all of Out One. <laughs> but what do you think, Jonathan? Speaking from my own experience, I mean, La Belle Moiseuse was the first one that I saw. And I think, uh, as I remember, I probably was his most... If, if you can use the word commercially successful, it was probably the one that was the most, um, it got the most attention, as I remember. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, it is a real rebet film. I mean, I think that's pretty long as well, isn't it? It's about four and a half hours yep. in its, in its full cut. It's a great film. I might go with that one first. And I think you don't really want to watch Paris belongs to us after out one, I think maybe. So maybe before. Yeah, I would go with that. And then I think just dive into out one. <laughs> just bite the bullet and do it. Or if you really like this film, Gang of Four is a really interesting follow up because it, it has kind of a similar approach to this idea of people rehearsing a play who are then all together in the same domestic space, and they're going through this sort of strife. But the strife is not the breakdown of a relationship. It's a little bit more complicated than that. So it's sort I, I guess you could also draw a path from this film to Gang of Four and then maybe Paris Belongs to Us, because Gang of Four and Paris Belongs to Us both have those sort of thriller themes. It's interesting also to watch um, The Nun, which was the film that he made uh, for this, just by way of contrast, because, uh, yeah, if you want to see him do like a really sort of classical style film uh, in a very formal way, I think it's really fascinating to see how much he changed within, I think, within three years, isn't it? Four years. So the, yeah. the, our documentaries really were the thing that I think made that that difference but uh, I'd always heard kind of like bad things about that and so when I did see it I I felt it was much better than I heard yeah those people are insane it, the nun is it doesn't feel like a typical revet film if there is such a thing but if you were to double feature Paris belongs to us and the nun there they are so radically different that it almost feels like they're not from the same director whereas Paris Belongs to Us, Out One, Love on the Ground, which I also think Love on the Ground might be an interesting place to start. Well, not start. Love on the Ground, definitely I would watch after Out One. It's, I don't know. I could, I could be here all day and give you a list with different orders. <laughs> I'll just make it even more, uh, yeah, or more confusing by just throwing in Bas Savoir as well, which I think yes. is a really, really nice kind of summary sort of late film, which uh, I guess is related in the sense that, I mean, again, it's about uh, 
Uh, it's about relationships. It's about theater. There's a Pirandello play at the heart of it. Uh, but yeah, it's a much breezier, much more lighthearted film um, than this one. Yeah, I think you could do a great double feature of Love on the Ground and Vassavoir. But of course, you know, for me to say do a double feature, it's like there's eight hours of your life. <laughs> well, you know, Andrea is going away for a bowling weekend in March, so maybe I'll just spend it that way. It's a Saturday spoken for, basically. What'd you do this weekend? Well, there are these two Rivette films. What else did you do? No, I don't think you understand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think my heart says out one. Yeah, thinking about it again. Sorry. <laughs> there was the most insane Thanksgiving of my entire life, probably like five years ago-ish. I was having some sort of weird family stuff going on. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to stay home for Thanksgiving and I'm going to watch all of Out One within a 24-hour period. <laughs> yep, it was a lot. I'm kind of glad in retrospect that when I saw it, I, I actually traveled away to London. So I was kind of like just like away from everybody when I saw it. And I think that was probably the best way to kind of digest it because I could just sit by myself, sort of like one of the characters that could just wander around London holding a book, just thinking about it. And uh, yeah, I don't think I could have been around people as a sort of social being after I'd seen that. Oh, yeah, definitely. I was very much alone for a couple of days because everybody sort of went to see their families and it's like that that's sort of how you have to do it you need time to recover and then to process drink lots of fluids well you know with the coronavirus coming up it'll give me plenty of opportunity all right guys we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show easy come people are the ultimate spectacle If you think about it, cattle ain't got them much worse than us. She ain't pregnant. I'm Nelson Eddy. So what's healthier than having a kid? Number 78 is in trouble. We've got a poor judge over there. What are you going to do? Put us in cages and let them throw peanuts at us? The boy from 67 is down. He is definitely down. Look at us. We're all like this now. Dirty. Swollen feet, no sleep. What do you want? Six, seven. Shut up, I'm done. I'm heading up. Fire! 
That's right. We'll be back maybe next week with They Shoot Horses, Don't They? That's not a question of whether we'll be back. It's a question of whether we'll do that film or another film. But that's the plan for now. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Jonathan and Sam. So, Jonathan, what has been going on with you lately? Um, I've been involved in the uh, upcoming Criterion release of uh, The Cremator, uh, which I think is... Yeah, I'm so excited for that because that's coming out, I think, next month. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to uh, yeah, seeing that. And um, I've also been working on an essay very, very slowly, which is going to be about um, the Czech film, uh, Tomorrow I Will Wake Up and Scold Myself with Tea. And I'm really looking at the kind of British uh, reception of that film because uh it had a kind of, I guess now sort of semi-mythical screening on BBC Two in the early 80s. And I know many, I know a few people who saw it or who thought they saw it and who thought they remembered the title, couldn't quite remember exactly the details of it. And it became this kind of mythical thing for a long time, I guess, in the pre-internet era. So I'm looking at the sort of cult reception of that in Britain and then sort of comparing it with the Czech reception. So I'm looking at two I guess, kind of parallel cult histories of uh, of that film and of the Czech uh, crazy comedy in general. And uh, so, yeah, that's that's kind of like the main thing that I'm uh, that's preoccupying me at the moment. Not to put you on the spot, but would you be up for coming on our um, Tomorrow I'll Wake Up episode and talking about this? Uh, yeah, I'd be delighted to. Yeah, I'd love to. Another film that I, I don't get too many chances to talk about. So, yeah, I would uh, be well up for that. We will have to set up a date. And Sam, I know you're not usually too busy, so are you doing anything these days? Uh, Well, this is always, I always have trouble answering this because I can never remember what has been announced and what hasn't. Uh, But one thing I think will be out around the time that this episode comes out is Kat and I finally recorded a new episode of Daughters of Darkness. uh, Where we do a lot of yelling about things. It is a Barovchik-themed episode. And that's all I will say. But uh, other than that, I've been doing a lot of commentaries. Um, I've been doing uh, some stuff with early German cinema for Kino. I think things that will be out soon are The Great Leap, the Arnold Funk film with Lenny Riefenstahl, uh, Paracelsus, which was the film that Pabst made under the Nazis. I did a commentary on Fulci's uh, erotic thriller, The Devil's Honey, for 88 films that will hopefully be out soon, which I'm super, super excited about. And there's probably other stuff, but that that's off, off, off the my head. Of my head. <laughs> that was a pretty good list for off the top of your head. It's a pretty random list, but... <laughs> <laughs> really excited about the Barovchik uh, episode. Me too. I can't wait for people to hear it. And I'm so glad that we able or we were able to actually find time on our very different and busy schedules. Well, thank you again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps a projection booth take over the world. Crazy, I'm crazy for feeling so lonely.
love me as long as you want it And then someday You'd leave me for somebody new this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.